DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Adam Bly, who is a church-decreed expert on religious demonology and exorcism for the Pittsburgh Diocese. He has helped train exorcists for over 15 years and has attended hundreds of solemn exorcisms. His journey started in brainwave research and psychology and is now focused on the spiritual realities of miracles, angels, demons, and possessions. He is also the author of several books, including The Exorcism Files. With Adam Bly, we go inside the pages of The History of Exorcism, published by Sophia Institute Press. We now continue with part two of our conversation. A lot of times we look at those things that the action of the enemy that is what well, 90% is temptation. The Our Father lead us not into temptation, but also, as we just said, the op- oppression and obsession. Those are things that can be dealt with, especially in the sacramental life that we have within the Mass, within confession. Isn't it been said, Adam, that one good confession could be worth of 100 exorcisms? These are all just kind of turns of phrase, but essentially, yes. For the average person, the average Catholic who has access to the sacraments, deliverance comes primarily through the sacramental graces, and that means baptism, confirmation, confession, and the Mass. Those are the the mechanisms that sanctifying grace comes into your life for the average person, and then, of course, matrimony for some people. People underestimate the importance and power of the sacramental graces, and they want the drama of the exciting prayer, thinking, you know, you'll do this kind of magical incantation and make these problems go away, versus the person doing the the work of conversion in themselves, of making it to Mass, of having a good confession, of doing the work of building a daily prayer life. All of those things are actually what lead to deliverance, primarily. It's not just the exciting prayers. If a person is unwilling to make any changes in their life, is unwilling to walk away from sin, is essentially unwilling to have conversion in their life, usually the prayers don't work because Jesus is looking for conversion and change. So if somebody has done something to get into trouble spiritually, they can't just come to the church and say, well, wave the magic wand and make the suffering go away. I don't like it, but I'm not going to change my life because Jesus knows our hearts. And so I've seen this over the years that even in the cases of full-blown possession, he wants to see spiritual growth in the person. He wants to see a movement towards him in trust and love and a turning away from sin in addition to coming to the church for prayers. And so the sacramental graces for the person that isn't possessed, actually, that is the engine that drives deliverance. It's so important that in your book, you have a section called Jesus as Exorcist. And that ultimately, that's the lesson, is the turning towards him, ultimately. And that's what the team, in their particular response to the individual, is helping that individual to turn towards them. It's not so much, it is the actions of what they're doing during the liturgy, because that's what it is. Exorcism is a liturgy, but it's the reception of that person to a life of faith. Is that... A fair way of saying it? Yes, that's that's a big part of it. They also are repenting of their sins through sacramental confession if they're Catholic. And then another important piece that 
most people don't think about is they're forgiving the sins of others. And so a demon can hold on to or it gets traction from our sins that we're unwilling to let go of or keep trying to let go of and get away from. But they can also hold on to when we are unforgiving of the sins of others that have hurt us. And so, as we know from the Our Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, we know that God wants us to forgive as he forgives us. You know, the parable of the king who forgives the debt of the one slave, and then that slave goes and beats up another slave and says, give me, you know, the little bit you owe me. And then when the the king finds out about this, he throws the first guy who he had forgiven, who's now being mean in turn, in jail. So we see this played out time and time again. God expects us to be merciful, and that that is part of it. And then, you know, in an interesting twist, sometimes the unforgiveness towards yourself becomes a stumbling block to total freedom, because if a person feels they deserve to be punished and suffer, and they're not forgiving themselves, even though they know they've been sacramentally forgiven, they even understand and, and believe Jesus has forgiven them, but if they feel that they can't forgive themselves and that they deserve this. That also gives the demon traction to hold on. So there's kind of a pastoral process that is woven through exorcism over time, working with the person outside of the sessions before and after and chatting with them and, you know, basically spiritual direction. And that's the part that's missing in the movies. Oh, yeah. That's an incredible part of it because as I alluded to earlier, you know, it's the opening of doors. I mean, we can, for example, have priests come through our house and bless our homes, place Benedictine medals at windows, go through the whole ritual as family. But then we go downstairs and put on a television screen or open up online and allow something that's evil in character into our house or to do actions. What was the point of the, of the prior blessing? I don't think we appreciate the fact that there is a need for repentance and a conversion of action, not just of words, Am correct? Yeah, and again, Jesus knows our hearts, so we can't just give lip service to these ideas because he knows what's going on with us for real, and he's looking for real conversion. And so, you know, it's just so important because ultimately— he doesn't allow this stuff just because he wants to allow it. You know, he doesn't enjoy the fact that we're suffering, but he allows it as a corrective experience so we realize the thing that we're embracing and we turn and run back to it. So ultimately, he's looking for closeness with us. And possession is something that happens to people that generally are running away from Jesus and are far from him and specifically are embracing demonic spirits in some way. And so he's not allowing this to be mean. He's saying, I'm going to let you see the monster that you've chosen, hoping that the person will then turn away and come back to him. Well, I thought it was really important in that particular section in closing from the exorcisms by Jesus that you point out that he does commission the 12, but in the 72 as well, to go out. But mm -hmm. it's important that it's not only the priests and the bishops who have the authority to cast out demons, and that would be revealed over a time, but it took centuries in a way for the church to find the need to limit the exercise of the use of exorcism. 
And you really broke that open. I thought that was so fascinating, the research you did on that. Well, it was a journey the church went through. And you know, one thing we have to remember, in the very early church, it was just apostles and followers. You would have the equivalent of a bishop in your city or your region who would be, you know, the current apostle, but there wasn't this whole hierarchy of, you know, deacons and priests and formal offices within the church because, you know, for the first 300 years, the church was under terrible persecution. It wasn't this big, wealthy institution with buildings and schools and everything else. It was it was a struggling little movement. And so we have to remember in those very early centuries, there weren't priest exorcists because there weren't priests in the very beginning. It quickly came about. But again, with the persecution in the early church, things just weren't that organized. And then as the church spread around the world, communication wasn't there. We didn't have an internet. Letters could take weeks, months, or never arrive you know, sending information around the world at that time. And so it was a very different world. It took centuries for the church to figure out this ministry and then through hard experience and seeing how difficult the ministry is and how it can chew people up and how it can lead to pride, which leads to destroying people and causing heresies to develop and all kinds of other problems, the church wisely said, we need to regulate this so that qualified people are doing it. It's not just, you know, somebody deciding they're going to pick it up because they'd like to. The church wanted to make sure people were qualified and then had kind of a proper context to keep them safe and effective, essentially. Yeah, it isn't a game. And there isn't something that you, oh, I, I'm fascinated, I'm curious about this, and I want to explore more. Right. Yes, reading your book is the great way to do that if you have that inkling. But the actual ministry of it, there is so much involved. And you go into the different types of exorcism and how they developed. For anybody who wants to understand more about the Freemasonry dynamics that are addressed by exorcism, that's fascinating. But also, it's a very real issue, isn't it? Yeah, so the minor exorcism, what's sometimes called the Leonine exorcism, because Pope Leo the Thirteenth wrote it in 1890, was originally explicitly directed against Freemasonry. It wasn't a general exorcism against the devil. It was it was against Freemasonry and Freemasonry. Since it's you know within 20 years of it coming into existence in the world in the early 1700s, the Church was identifying it as the Church's greatest enemy in the world. And there's been, you know, papal statements. I think there's at least seven different popes have made formal bulls and statements about Freemasonry condemning it, reminding Catholics that they're excommunicated if they become Freemasons, which is still the case, by the way. And so, yeah, the the minor exorcism actually was all about Freemasonry. And that's why I took that kind of aside in the book to explain the history of Freemasonry and where it came from so that we could see it kind of from the church's perspective and imagine, you know, how they were seeing Freemasonry and, and why that may have led to this prayer being written. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. 
Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Show your support for Discerning Hearts by liking and leaving positive reviews on your favorite streaming platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and more. With a collection of insightful podcasts led by renowned Catholic spiritual guides, such as Father Timothy Gallagher, Monsignor John S.F., Dr. Anthony Lillis, and more, Discerning Hearts is your gateway to a deeper understanding of discerning life's mysteries and growing deeper in your relationship with Christ. Your likes and reviews not only affirm the value these podcasts bring to your spiritual journey, but also help others discover the guidance and inspiration they seek. Share your thoughts, spread the word, and be part of a community that's committed to elevating hearts and minds through meaningful conversations. Your feedback fuels our mission to help others climb higher and go deeper in their spiritual growth. Like, review, and let your voice be a beacon of light for fellow seekers on this spiritual journey. We now return to Inside the Pages. We're talking to Adam Bly about his book, The History of Exorcism. You also go into the the experience of the church, and I wish we had more time because this is such a good and noble work that you've done, Adam, in bringing all of this forward. But the good news is, like you said, the church has, again, been able to bring forward because of the needs of our times, and particularly, too, the fullness of the ritual, whether it's the minor exorcisms that we might experience, say, for in the, in the rites of Christian initiation of, of adults, mm-hmm. um, and but also those that have been brought in the formal rite of exorcism that even went back and they tweaked it more because the language is so important that they wanted to make sure they got this right because it's such an important thing. Yeah, yeah. The new rite of exorcism that originally was promulgated in 1999 as uh, for people to review and experiment with was revised, I believe, five different times before it was settled and then you know translated into English. And so we now have it through the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. They, we have our official translation. The language, yeah, is very important and keeping the kind of Basically, yeah, the theology of it, the strength of the prayers, all of these play a role in essentially the effectiveness. But to come back again, the prayer being sincere is also extremely important. And then the conversion of the person that the church is praying for is, in a sense, the most critical piece of it. So if a person doesn't want to be free, for example— you could do exorcisms every day for years and nothing would happen because God's not going to violate their free will. It's it's an interesting story, I think, and hopefully through reading the book, people will get a sense of how the mind of the church developed on this topic down through time and led up to the, the rite of 1614 and then the new rite that we have now. And exorcists use both. They're um, they're free to use both as long as their bishop's okay with it. And so, you know, here we are in this modern time, you know, here we are in 2023, 
and a rite that was written in 1614, you know, is still standard and effective. And the new rite is standard and effective. It's because the spiritual realities don't change. Uh, no matter how much our intellect changes and our science changes, the basic spiritual realities of life, uh, they never change, just like Jesus never changes. Same before, you know, same then, same forever. So, yeah, I, I hope, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope people find it interesting and at least puts the ministry in context for them. I'm curious, your thoughts, since you really have been a veteran, as it were, of the spiritual warfare, of spiritual combat, as some have called it, what your feelings are about the rise of technology and mass media to be able to present to so many people information about this subject that may or may not be a good thing for everybody to know. Is it one of those things where we need to know everything, or is it still important to keep some things quiet? It's We're in a unique generation where this topic is being talked about openly by a number of exorcists and, and people legitimately involved in it, and that really hasn't happened before. One of the challenges with all that is, as you say, people can learn too much. And by that, I mean, I don't mean there's secrets, but there are ugly realities that the average person doesn't want to know. And then if people learn about just the prayers, they may have the misguided notion that, oh, well, I can buy that book and now I've got the book, I can go do an exorcism. They can have these kind of misguided notions that, you know, and then they can play with, play around with things they really shouldn't be because they're not going to have the authority over the demon. They're, they're going to be called out on that if they encounter a possessed person. The demon's going to just let them know, you have no authority over me and proceed to not obey them. And, and you know, there's going to be problems. And the other thing is, you can kind of think of this there's analogies for this, like let's say detectives and you know people that work in law enforcement. There are detectives that specialize in types of crime where people say, oh, I'm really fascinated. I want to hear about that. But in reality, they don't. You know, the ugly reality is of how disturbing some crimes are. People don't actually want to hear about those, or at least the average person does not. There are a few people that are darkly fascinated with it. But Believe me, I've, I've worked in prisons, uh, working in psychological services. I've, I've had clients of, of all types in terms of every type of human evil and crime and hearing about it, you know, in detail through doing therapy with people. And there are things that you don't want, you know, you can't unhear. You weren't even there, but you can't unhear it and take those images out of your head. And so, you know, there's a lot that isn't in the books that the public is shown. And the, the details of the art of all of this is something that's really only passed on in mentorship situations because it's the only way you can pass it on. Think of it this way. If you wanted to learn how to do surgery, you could read as many books on surgery as you want to, but until you actually attend a surgery and watch and then practice with somebody teaching you how to do it, you're never going to be competent to do surgery on somebody. You simply can't learn it without doing it. And this is a similar thing. So there's a lot of cautions and a lot of concerns that those of us in the media feel about sharing this information. We want to share enough 
so that people know what to avoid and stay out of trouble. But you don't want to share too much because you don't want to wound people's mind by telling them the really horrible stuff. And you don't want to tell them so much that they have this misguided idea that they can just go do exorcism themselves. And so it's always kind of a balancing act. Here's the great news. The place you go to, the, the field hospital you turn to is your church. Mm-hmm. You, turn, you turn to your parish, you go to your priest, you talk to him if necessary, if it, it's something that you felt that you weren't heard, you can always go to another priest or maybe the chancery. There are places that you can go to so you can find that if you have questions, not only about maybe something that's going on in you or maybe a family member, because of people like you, Adam, and your assistance to the church as well, you're able to help find answers and to be liberated. And I think that's what our Lord ultimately wants for all of us, right? Yeah. Start with your parish priest. If they don't know about what you're looking for, you can contact the central office of your diocese and ask if there's any specialist priests in your diocese. I can't help people from other dioceses because that's how the church is set up. I work for my bishop in the Pittsburgh diocese. So I would just refer people back to their own chancery if they contact us, you know, in our diocese. And that's just with any administrative thing. That's how the church is set up. In just about every diocese, there are specialists that know about this and can help walk you through the process of discerning whether what you're going through is mental illness, medical problems, just a misunderstanding, whether it's nightmares, or whether it's a genuine spiritual problem. Yeah, and that's, again, thanks to you and so many who work through the Pope Leo XIII Institute and a number of those type of institutes around the world. We have several of them in the United States. And now, unlike 15 years ago, Almost every diocese, or at least a, a metropolitan area of, of diocese, have those who have been trained. And so that right. is a great blessing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. The ministry is coming back. It's um, in the West. It's back on its feet. Enough people are trained that, you know, I, I think the Holy Spirit's bringing it back, and now it's established. And so it's interesting. We're, we're going to live through interesting times. People are not catechized anymore. The occult is readily available on the internet, and it's being promoted through TV and movies. And so I think the Holy Spirit brought this ministry back because there's going to be a lot of work to do. Oh, that's right. That's right. Any final thoughts, Adam, in the closing of our conversation? You know, just to be positive, don't be fearful. Remember that Jesus loves you. These things are only allowed as a consequence of our choice of sin. And they're only as corrective experiences so that we turn back to him. So the most important thing is trust him, love him, do the sacraments. If you're Catholic, do the Catholic sacraments. If you're Protestant, go to the services that you go to, but live a life of conversion. That's the important thing. Don't put the devil at the center of your spiritual life and be fearful of him and make him the centerpiece. Put Jesus there. The devil is an afterthought. He's off to the side. Your focus needs to be Christ. Amen. Very well said. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. God bless you. With Adam Bly, we've gone inside the pages of The History of Exorcism. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to sophiainstitute.com, the website for its publisher, Sophia Institute Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. 
to hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. 